Hola, gente linda, and welcome to Café with Comadres. We are three Latinas meeting at the intersection of healing, faith, and justice. We believe in the healing power of sisterhood and honest conversations that happen at tables that extend both the nourishment and accountability that we need. The season is all about embodiment, a word that you may be familiar with or one that you are exploring for the very first time. And so because the season is all about embodiment, we couldn't just talk and listen. We need to go a little bit deeper, which is why this episode will end with an invitation of a practica. These are invitations that take what you're listening and puts them into action in our own bodies. The beauty of Comadrazgo is that it invites us to have deeper, more embodied conversations. And this is why I'm so excited to be having this conversation with two very special comadres today. One whom you've already know, which is our very own Sandy Ovalle Martinez. Hola, hola. It's so good to be back for another episode of Café with Comadres. I'm yes. excited for our guest today, too. <laughs> Me, too. And so another comadre that is joining us in this podcast for the first time, she is author, pastor, and podcaster herself, Aurelia Davila Pratt. Hi, I'm so excited and honored to be here with y'all. I can't wait to chat. Yes, this is bound to be such a rich conversation. Because for those that do not already know who Aurelia is, this comadre is a theologian, a pastora, a partner, a mama, a thought leader, and a curator of sacred moments. And we are so excited to also say the author of the upcoming book, A Brown Girl's Epiphany. Reclaim your intuition and step into your power. Wow, that sounds nice. <laughs> that title itself <laughs> I makes you want to get excited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this book is set to release on September 13th. And so run, don't walk. Get this beautiful gift and support this incredible thought leader among us. And so Aurelia, for many, many reasons, but just for being you, we're just so glad that you're joining La Mesa today. Thank you so much. That was really overwhelming to hear all those nice things, but I will accept them. Well, because you are all of them. You know, I didn't make any of those things up. <laughs> it just matches so much of your energy, you know, that intuition and power yes. and bringing all that goodness together. I can't wait until everyone has a copy of this book in their hands. Yes. Mm. Yes. Me so too. And today you're joining us for a conversation that's requires comadreo, that requires deep and honest conversations. Because, you know, Latinx persons come in all shades. This just in, just kidding. We've known this for a long time. <laughs> so when we say brown bodies, I first wanted to situate this use of brown. And Robert Chao Romero in his work, Brown Church, refers to brown as symbolic, symbolic of the cultural and biological mestizaje in Latin American, I know this term is loaded, mestizaje. And so if you want to know more about it, listen to us unpack it in season one, episode three, under the terms questionable terms. And in the U.S. context, brown symbolizes the racial liminality experienced by Latinx persons as we navigate the black and white racial binary in the U.S. So brown in many ways is fluid because we have to own and recognize that during the Jim Crow era, we were legally defined as white. Through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, some got granted citizenship because they didn't cross the border. The border 
crossed them. We have been wanted for our land, our labor, our food, but have often been rejected for our cultural heritage, our lived experiences, our leadership, and our wisdom. Our Latinx siblings have been deported and scapegoated and discarded and also elected into office and celebrated as scholars and been upheld in pop culture. So Brown is liminal. We are both wanted and unwanted in the same breath. And so it's an exhausting, liminal, fluid shade (laughs) (laughs) that we're going to talk about today. And so with that said, comadres, what are you bringing to La Mesa today? What have been your lived experiences with this label of brown surrounding your body? Hmm. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. I wrote a book called A Brown Girl's Epiphany. So I really <laughs> have been thinking about this label. Um, and But my experience with Brown was really shaped in childhood. And when I speak of it, because of that, I'm often speaking both literally and symbolically in terms of my own identity. Um, so in childhood, I had a lot of shame outwardly because I existed in a context that was solely black and white in a setting that had a lot of racist history and and fresh racial tension in the early 90s, I mean, in the 90s and early 2000s. And so I was very aware that I was not white and I was not black because to be white or black in my context was such a big part of your identity. It shaped everything. It was, there was no color blindness. Um, they, you know, we talk about that being a bad thing. Well, in this case, <laughs> they could have used a little more sometimes. Um, but I had a lot of shame because I didn't know where I belonged on that spectrum. And because I was a kid and there wasn't anybody else to share that experience outside of my immediate family, I, I struggled with that. Um, And then also internally uh, experiencing that liminality that you talked about inside of not being Mexican enough, but not white enough, um, and really having this shame that I'm isolated from any community, uh, but I, so therefore I can't learn aspects or experience aspects of a community cultural experience. Uh, So I always just felt like my most of my life, I've been looking for permission to belong. Um, And in childhood, I didn't sense I had that permission, but I knew I was brown. So I didn't necessarily think I was allowed to call myself Latina. I didn't think I was allowed Mm -hmm. to call myself Chicana um, or the things that maybe I feel more empowered to call myself now. Um, But I knew I was brown because in the context I existed in, they made it very clear based Mm -hmm. on the experiences and some of the racial traumas I did navigate in in that context of rural North Louisiana. Um, So my book tells this story. In many ways, it's about that journey of ultimately giving myself permission and finding inner belonging. Um, But that's a little bit of what shaped my understanding of brownness and how I'm coming here. And I could say so much more maybe in a bit about colorism and and, and, in my context as well. 
Yeah, it'd be great to hear more about embodied brownness, right? When you have that uh, as part of your skin and that identity as part of how you move around in the world. And I think, Dan, you mentioned that brownness isn't fixed. You know, brownness is very fluid. And as you just spoke about, uh, Aurelia, brownness is is this is determined by context. You know, it's, it's the context that breaks the boundaries of identity. So the boundaries of an identity in a certain context are different. Um, I think often to these U.S. contexts where there is a lot of proximity to other socially constructed racial groups. And that makes it complicated, right? Because there's sort of like, there's people who have this brown identity that are more proximate to blackness or more proximate to whiteness, or they have this brown identity, but are more proximate to indigeneity. So I'm, um, I didn't grow up in the US. And so that makes it different as far as context goes. I think that in the context where I grew up, I was the majority, as I've often spoken about in this uh, in this podcast, and in a sense, is I to use what Kat Armas and Miguel de la Torre often talk about is like I was just a Mexican person in Mexico one day and woke up a brown person in the U.S. Mm. the next day. Yeah, and so it was context that really. Uh, made a difference in where I was positioned in society and how I was perceived. Today, I move a lot in a lot of predominantly white institutions and organizations. And so oftentimes, my heavy-bodied, black hair, medium-light skin personhood with an interesting accent makes me brown in some ways, right? Like I'm automatically categorized as brown, even though my skin color, when I am around a lot of Latina folks, may not put me in the brown category for that. And so that what makes this this uh, label so tricky is both that it has this connotation to race, but it also speaks of this cultural identity that is not tied to color. And so it's 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 a tricky one to embrace. It's so tricky. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, yeah, growing up in Guatemala, there was, I was identified more with the lighter skin because, you know, I have freckles, but my, my this or like my, my skin color is not as melanated as some of my other Latine uh, siblings. And it was until I came to the United States that I started, you know, like you already like, oh, I felt brown. I, I felt the liminal space of I don't quite fit into this binary. And it was actually during grad school that when all the like all the avatar things started to come out for like the phones where you could like I forget what the app is called right now, but you could like create a little avatar of yourself and you could send yourself like winking or like with hearts in your eyes and like smiling. And I um I was living with somebody who was also brown, wonderful comadre Rosa, and I was sitting on the couch and she looked at me and she's like, "You are not that brown." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I and mean... she's like, "Jen, like Jen, you're not that brown. Like you're not as brown in terms of skin hue." She wasn't telling me I wasn't brown, but she was saying, "What you are actually choosing on the avatar is like three shades darker than what you actually are. And I went, oh, wait, what? What? 
what's happening? You know? And even I started to look to my text thread, like I would choose the darkest of the brown and like the little hand emojis and the people. And it was that that moment of feeling the liminality and the fluidity mm. and also the anger to say, okay, what shade of brown am I then? Can I still be brown enough? Can I, you know, and so there's places in which when I am in mostly Latine Central American spaces where I don't have the color brown skin, that gorgeous, gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I am in predominantly white spaces, similar to you, Sandy, I am very aware of my brownness because I have curly hair and that my the brownness I'm currently trying to navigate is my hair. For the longest time, I strengthened, I curled, like I had so many curling irons and I decided in my 30s, my gift to myself will be to to just literally let my body be, let, let my hair yes. be. Yes. And I have this curly hair and that's part of my own brownness, right? Is that- Welcome to the curly yes, hair club. Yes, I'm learning. <laughs> it actually, anyway, this is another conversation, but curly hair takes as much time and product. <laughs> as it's not, it's not, not easy, it's which not is easier. such an erroneous thing that, such an erroneous narrative I had and yet I'm working through. Oh, so it was in those moments. And then when I get like matched for makeup, I never get make makeup matching for me is so difficult because I've told to have yellow undertones and yet I have freckles and yet my underskin is a little bit lighter. And so literally every makeup company, shout out to Fendi because it's the only one that has enough in between shades to ever match me growing up. I always literally had to mix my mom's foundation with like a bronzy foundation and I had to make my own to match, you know, what I actually look like. Or else it would look so funky. And so it is contextual. Mm -hmm. But it also, I think, over time, I've come to recognize that while my body in certain contexts doesn't read or doesn't get translated as brown enough or different kinds of brown, I feel the brown all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I My body knows the brown. So how others view me is of a shock sometimes. But the feeling of brown never leaves my body, you know? So it's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, I um, kind of have the opposite struggle in that. In my, I write about this in my book, but my grandma would always call me a coconut. And she's like, you're brown on the outside, but you're white on the inside and you can't speak Spanish. And like, mm. I, I'm, I mean, we would joke about it, but actually it's a really big source of shame, obviously, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, what was I supposed to do? Like assimilation happened before I was born and then my family moved to where they moved. I didn't have a say in it, you know? Um, and so I always struggle with feeling like, you know, I can only even enter these spaces because I look like I fit the part, you know what I mean? And that's always something that's just, I don't know a struggle for me because I'm, I I get so much anxiety feeling. And it's funny because I, in so many areas, I'm working on this, you know, inner permission, but still when it Mm -hmm. comes to particularly these spaces with, you know, like our Latina book club, we were, we had together for a (laughs) bit, which is awesome. But, you know, I always just still struggle to feel like a fraud. Mm. Yeah. There are so many ways in which we, you know, it's like, how do we claim the boundaries of what means to be brown, you know, and how do we show that? And is it something that is 
internal only? Like, do you feel brown, like you were saying, Jen? Or is it something that the community affords you, you know, mm -hmm. like the community recognizes you as brown? And that's that's a wrestling, right? As someone who grew up in Mexico, I hear you're really with like having those those kind of experiences of, of carrying shame. You know, it's like I show up at supermarkets here in the US, like Mexican supermarkets, particularly in California, not so much here in Washington, but I used to live in California where there's a lot more uh, Mexican folks around. And I would walk into the Mexican supermarket and I was uh, always greeted in English, always assumed uh, <laughs> to be the foreigner that was exploring the Mexican market, right? And so I'm feeling this like, no, I'm like, I'm one of us <laughs> and um, and having the sort wow. of like, how do we carry these identifiers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you carry the identifier as like you carry the skin, but the community isn't like recognizing that, right? And how do we, and, and how do those of us, or how do we welcome each other, right? Like how do we make space for each other, even in our, in all of our shades, even in all yeah. of our different experiences and survival experiences, like the one that you are talking about, right? Like the, the way that your family had to assimilate. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And navigating with, with the both and the interior and the exterior narrative, right? Is each of us lead in very particular ways in this constant ebb and flow of the internal and the external. And Aurelia, as you're, you're a pastora and you prepare gorgeous, gorgeous sermons that I've heard yes. and you do pastoral care and accompaniment and spiritual care. And Sandy, you curate leadership development for a major organization in a lot of different spaces. And you're a table setter. And I do all sorts of funny things as well. Not funny things, but I do some fun things. And how is it, I would love for us to chat for a bit how do we integrate our brownness into the work that we do, whether that is leading in organizational spaces, leading in the church context, leading in, in academic spaces? You know, comadres, where have you seen faith communities get this right? And where are the growing edges that we feel up against our skin as we navigate the various places that we lead? Yeah, Danessa, I was uh, thinking about this question I wonder what the, the point of entry into that question may be. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, initially when we were discussing a little bit of this episode, you mentioned like, how do you incorporate this into the work with the church? And my first instinct, instinct was to ask like, what church? <laughs> it was like, there are, there are many yeah. churches. And so I think that that's part of what brownness does. It questions the assumptions. Whereas mm -hmm. I think oftentimes other spaces uh, enter into conversations like this with universal views or with mm -hmm. thinking like the church is, is the church that I experience. And I think part of brownness is saying like, what church? Because we know that there are churches that are not made for us because we know what it's like to be in churches that don't take into account um, our cultural experiences, our background, our assimilation or our resistance to assimilation. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that that's that's one way in which we lead and we get it right is that we question the assumptions we enter into spaces with a suspicion and i think it's a healthy suspicion a healthy mm -hmm. a healthy embrace of mystery mm -hmm. and when i think of brown as a cultural label not just a, a people group per se that is very homogeneous i think how in many of our cultures power is explicitly named 
power is explicitly understood. Like it's, it's explained explicitly many of our languages for those of us that speak Spanish or that have uh, some concept of how power dynamics were fixed. You know, we have very fixed categories of where power is at. And I don't, I want to say like, this is sort of like a confusing blessing or a blessing in disguise, but oftentimes in communities where power is not so explicitly named, where there's not different identifiers for who is in power, who rests where in this, um, in this hierarchical society, it makes you like confused all the time not to know like who has the power mm. who do you respect or treat in a certain way because of the power that that they have and you think that you have the same power as other people in many spaces and then you realize like no we don't I may call my boss Tom or I may call you know I may like act very approachable with everyone but the reality is like there is different, there's power differentials. And I think mm-hmm. sort of what uh, what is good about that is that you can explicitly name and see how the power is mitigated. And two, it's also good for us to have that in the sense of it allows us to honor elders better. It allows us to honor those that are uh, teachers and wisdom holders, story holders better, because we explicitly name people maestro. Profesor, maestra, uh, we name people uh, curandera, the healer, the teacher. We name power explicitly, and I think that that is actually a good thing for all of us. So that's one of the ways in which I think brownness contributes. And I'm not saying let's preserve all this power dynamics. There's 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 nuance in how we do these, but uh, but I think it's a it's a good place for us to approach um, our leadership through these things. So mm. yeah. I love that response. And speaking of homogeneity, I don't know why my mind went here, but I am reminded of in childhood being teased a lot by a group of boys. And again, I ta- I very briefly mentioned this in my book as well, because these are all themes around being brown. But basically, they would tease me about being Mexican. They would tease me about being brown. They would I mean, they, I would go home every day and cry. It was not, it was not funny. It was very much, it was awful. But what was so interesting was one of the boys actually is of Mexican descent, his family, they all had a very, I won't name it, but they all had a very common last name that we've all heard before, (laughs) but his family was more prominent in the community. They had access to, you know, they had a big house with a, with a nice swimming pool and they had, you know, they had just a different status than we did. And so he, as far as I could tell, didn't identify with his background or he distanced himself from it. Who knows? But I remember going home crying and my sister saying, well, what about this person? He's Mexican. Tell him he is Mexican. Tell him he is also Mexican when he teases you. And I never did, but um, it just made me think about what would my identity have been if we had status in the community? What would my identity have felt like if we had money um, and all these things? And it's in, you see two different people with the same background and living in the same context, but treated totally different in the community. And going back to the church and what Sandy was saying, it makes, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the 
what I think that the brown voice brings to the church, which is this nuance and this acknowledgement of intersections. And because we live in this liminal space in our hearts and our minds and in society, we know like we're professional. We, we know how to navigate all these layers more than we realize. And we have something to bring to the church in, in that, that way that it's not this binary. It's not this simple. It's not this universal way of oneness. It is this nuanced, mysterious, liminal space. And that is the future. Um, if we're going to have, you know, if we're going to move toward liberation, then we have to do it in this really road less traveled kind of way. Um, and so I don't know why that came to my to my mind, but I think that for me, step one is... Uh, living into my own fullness. Because if I'm not doing that, then I'm not existing in my fullness in the church or as a leader. And and then everyone's missing out when we're, when we're all, you know, not living into our fullness. Yeah, what both of you are speaking to, surprisingly, Aurelia, I also went to like an unexpected place for, for a memory. And you know, I was in a meeting at work and they were presenting different options for how we might move forward. And everyone was kind of voting on one option or the other. And when it got to my turn, I said, you know, I just, I just wonder if we can actually think of something that could integrate both and. And the table collectively started to laugh. And I was like, oh, excuse me. And they were like, Oh, that's so Jen. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what just happened? What is so me? And they're like, Jen, you always want to like do the both and. <laughs> and I said, really? And one of my coworkers said, your favorite meal is brunch, Jen. Like you can't even pick like a binary and like food times. <laughs> in the day. And it was the first time where I recognized that in myself. Yeah. That my journey towards wanting to recognize the beauty of the fluidity and the liminality wasn't always there. I always have felt the pressure to make a choice because that's a Western construction that we have choice and we have to make these choices. And it was what was coming up in me is my upbringing of a community that always was trying to find the both ends that was constantly saying, no, 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 it's not black or and it's not white it's brown <laughs> why can't brown be the choice that we make and so as I step into leadership I've become more and more aware and I'm grateful for these moments where others have helped me see I have a preferential treatment for the in-between for the liminal for the fluid and that's been an increasing growth I wasn't always there and there's still parts in me that are really that continue to be governed by binaries I'm not going to assume they're not there but I have found in that in leadership spaces, I'm constantly drawn and this is the gift that we bring, but it's also a growing edge because when you choose the both and, and you choose that abundant answer, it's going to have to come up against some paradigms of frameworks, some ideologies, some worldviews. And I am not always with the emotional bandwidth to make those choices, right? And so there's some growth edges in when do we push for that? And when do I feel my own exhaustion? And I kind of just like make the quote unquote choice because <laughs> wow. it just feels so hard to push for mm. the 
the wedge, right? The in-between um, of yeah. it all. It's yeah. absolutely the harder way. Um, but I think just shifting in our own internal landscape can be so powerful, even when we don't, I mean, even when we can't always get others to do the same, <laughs> have the same commitment, it's such a, it's such an internal shift that is so powerful because I, I spent my whole life feeling like the liminal space was a curse. And then mm-hmm. suddenly I realized it was my superpower. Mm-hmm. Like what I thought was a curse was actually where my power dwelt. So sitting here talking with you all is just so validating that, you know, we have a shared experience there. Yeah. 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 And I know, Aurela, you have, as we were preparing for this conversation, you brought up this beautiful poem up to us. And I want to, yeah, let you set that up. And we're so excited and so grateful that for today's embodiment yes. invitation, um, Comadre Aurelia will be gifting us a reading from a poem she wrote called The Color of Dirt. And we'll just leave this time to let those words wash over you. And I'll let her set up this time of practica and share um, her beautiful poem with us. And we'll come back and close our time together. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I um, wrote this several years ago, maybe four four or five years ago, and I'm really excited to get to share it in this space. So yes, this is called The Color of Dirt. Thank you for, for listening. Do you know what it's like to be treated like dirt because your skin is the color of it? My grandmother was born and raised in the border town of Brownsville, Texas. Truly a Tejana, she was in between two countries, in between two languages, in between two cultures, always in between. For a time, she was a migrant worker who found her way to Chicago where her five kids were born. I knew her in Louisiana, always sitting in that one chair at that same kitchen table, natural light flooding in the room, sunflower placemats. I can still see her sitting there. Her final years were cool summers and wet winters under the cloudy skies of Oregon, but it never mattered where she moved. She was in between, always in between. It's the kind of in-betweenness that begins with external voices, but over time seeps into your pores, your gut, your soul, and settles into your own internal dialogue. This was her unchosen inheritance passed down to her children and their children. When I was a little girl, my abuelita used to tell my older sister, always go out with your face on, put your nicest clothes on, or they'll assume you're a migrant worker. In fact, just the other day, after my sister was racially profiled at the doctor's office, she later recalled to me, I even did everything right. I got dressed, no sweats. I spoke well, just like grandma always said. Do you know what it's like to be treated like dirt because your skin is the color of it? My grandma knew, my sister knew, I learned young too. Racism, sexism, social manipulation, and microaggressions, these have been my teachers drilling into my head the mantra of in-betweenness. You are not enough. You are too much. You don't fit the mold. You don't belong. Do you know what it's like to be treated like dirt because your skin is the color of it? For too long, I have filtered my fire and reconfigured as required. I have gone to sleep to the deepest parts of me, but now I am shaking myself trying to wake up and get free because I have been told no or you can't so many times and in so many ways. And yet look at where I stand. Look at who I am. I am a pastor leading a beautiful congregation and people are listening. 
It makes me wonder if so much good can happen anyway. If so much good can happen despite all the no's and you can'ts, what will happen when I cast off my shame? What will happen when I let myself rise, when I take up all my space? Because beautiful things come from the earth. They come from the black and brown soil. Flowers grow in the fucking dirt. And I'll bloom too. I'll speak my truth as if I had no choice without apology. Shoulders back, chin up. I will use my brown woman's voice. Wow. Take some deep breaths (laughs) and receive what a gift. Thank you, Pastora. Thank you for the gift of that poetry. And gente linda, thank you so much for joining today. Special thanks to our Comadre Aurelia for joining La Mesa today. And if you would like to know more about her work, we would invite you to visit RevAureliaJoy.com or follow her on Instagram at RevAureliaJoy as well. She also is a podcaster, and so check out her podcast, Nuance Tea. And if you like this podcast, we hope that you leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on, because it really does help others find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Café with Comadres, and we invite you to leave comments on this episode's post to continue the conversation. Comadres, nos vemos en la siguiente sobremesa. 